You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Have any of you ever met a perfect person other than Jesus Christ? Probably not. Across a story about uh, perfection that I think most of you uh, might enjoy. Once upon a time, a perfect man and a perfect woman met. After a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding. Their life together was absolutely perfect. One stormy, snowy Christmas Eve, this perfect couple was driving their perfect car along a winding road when they noticed someone at the side of the road in distress. Being the perfect couple, they decided to stop and help. And there stood Santa Claus with a huge bag of toys. Not wanting to disappoint any children on Christmas Eve, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys into their car, and soon they were driving along, delivering the toys. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated, and the perfect couple and Santa Claus had an accident. Only one of them survived the accident. Now see if you can answer this question, who was the survivor? Obviously it was the perfect woman because there's no such thing as Santa Claus and there's no such thing as a perfect man. (laughs) The truth is, the truth is, other than Jesus Christ, I think we would all agree in this room that nobody is perfect. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 7.20, it says there, for there is not a single person in all the earth who does always good and never sins. Romans 3.23, Paul kind of backs that statement up and Paul says that, you know, all have sinned. Every one of us have sinned. Every one of us have fallen short of God's glorious, his holy standard. And so when it comes to imperfection, when it comes to sin, when it comes to failure, all of us in this room, we are in the same boat together. And I love what the Apostle Paul, he kind of, you know, takes this and and kind of uh, unveils this in an even more uh, um, practical way, a way that I think most of us can identify with. And Paul says in Romans 7, and he kind of beginning there in verse 15, he says, I really don't understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. That's the tension. The struggle we all deal with as a result of our sinfulness, our brokenness, our imperfections, our weaknesses, our shortcomings. There's not a one of us in this room who cannot identify with all of this just based upon our own life experiences. We hear what Paul is saying there and our response is, yep, that's true of me. I relate to that. I can identify with that. And then we take it another step further 
For those of us who are Christ followers, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you are in relationship to Jesus Christ, if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul's saying if you're a believer, a follower in Jesus Christ, if you're someone who has chosen to surrender, to give your life, your heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he says you're a new creation in Christ. Those old things, and there he's talking about that old sin nature, those old habits, they no longer have the hold, the power over us they once did and here's where the tension comes for the Christ follower. Even though we are this new creation in Christ, we still experience struggles with doing what we should not be doing and don't always do what we should. So for a lot of us who consider ourselves to be Christ followers, one of the issues that we struggle with periodically in our walk with God is this. If I am this new creation in Christ, if the old in me has truly passed away and the new has come, why do I still struggle with certain sins in my life? Why is it that certain experiences or childhood experiences continue to affect my behavior, my relationships? Why don't I have perfect thoughts, attitudes, reactions, and behaviors? Can I truly be a child of God? Can I truly be a son and a daughter of God and still struggle with failures, weaknesses, faults? And the obvious answer to that is yes. The biblical answer to that is yes. You can be a lover of God. You can be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, still struggle with immaturity, with failures, with faults, with imperfections. I love this promise that we are given in Philippians 1.6. And here he says, I am certain. Other translations would say, I am confident that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. This is a glorious promise. It's a wonderful promise. And it says the moment you become a Christian, the moment you become a Christ follower, that God begins in you a new work. And that work is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says that good work that God has begun in you, that God is committed to completing, to bringing that work to completion until we either die and leave this earth or until Jesus comes back. Whatever happens first, God is committed to finishing the work he has begun in us. So our identity as Christ followers is we are this new creation. God has begun a new work in our lives and it is a work that God is doing and it is a work that God will continue to do and it will take a lifetime to complete. This new work God 
has began and is doing within us is not without some detours, some bumps in the road, amen? As a new creation, oftentimes it takes time to adjust to this new creation, to really begin to understand and to embrace and to begin to kind of walk in this new work that God is doing in our lives. So we oftentimes just need to be patient with ourselves. We need to be patient with one another. Every one of us, we're works in progress. I love what Philippians 2.12 says, it's working out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is a place where I believe what 1 Peter 4.8 talks about, you know, love covering a multitude of sin. When I love you deeply, that love should be deep enough that it's a willing, it's able to overlook, to overcome any of the sins, the failures, the struggles that you may be experiencing. Because whether we realize it or not, it is only the one who is doing that good work in us is perfect. We are not. And it takes time to mature spiritually. And in that process, we will fail often. But in the end, and through it all, the scriptures call us just to continually fix our eyes, our focus upon the author of that salvation, of our salvation, the author of that good work, the one who made us in his image, the one who is committed to conforming us more and more into the image of his son, to look to the one who began that good work and to be confident that what he began, he will finish in us. This morning, I want to just kind of look at a few principles that are important for us to keep in mind, to kind of keep these in the forefront, that as we walk in that tension of being that new creation in Christ, that good work that God is doing in us, and the tension that we're going to feel as we again kind of stumble and we fail, Times weaknesses get the better part of us. So the first thing I think that is important for us to understand is there is a huge difference, huge difference between spiritual immaturity and rebellion. Spiritual immaturity and rebellion are not the same thing in God's eyes. Now in some ways, spiritual immaturity and rebellion look the same outwardly and maybe how they present themselves, how they manifest, but in God's eyes, spiritual immaturity and rebellion are very different. Many Christians kind of falsely believe that they are rebellious before God because they wrongly view spiritual immaturity and rebellion as kind of one and the same. And one reason why we often think that, you know, spiritual immaturity and rebellion are one and the same, again, is because on some occasions, they kind of look similar in the way that they'll outwardly manifest or show themselves. 
Rebellion and spiritual immaturity may outwardly kind of look the same, but the difference between the two, and this is really what we're pressing into here this morning, the difference between the two is the heart. It is the position of your heart before God that is the big difference between spiritual immaturity and outright rebellion against God. The scriptures make it very, very clear that God and God alone can see to the human heart, that God can see our, our, our inner thoughts, our motivations, and that God is able to see directly into the heart of a person. Again, it is a huge mistake, and it is, it is potentially a destructive deception to see ourselves as, as rebellious, or, or that we're walking in rebellion to God, when in truth, we may just be struggling with spiritual immaturity. Now, one of the ways that I think we can understand better the difference between spiritual immaturity and rebellion is to look at sheep and pigs that get stuck in the mud. If you know anything about pigs, if you take a pig out of a mud hole, the first thing they look for is another mud hole to get into. It's in their heart, it's in their nature, it's the way God designed them. It is their desire to live in the mud. No matter how hard you fight against that desire, a pig will always go back to the mud. Now on the other hand, when a sheep gets stuck in mud, they will fight like crazy to free themselves from its grip. Even though they may have walked into that mud hole with their eyes wide open, their desire is to get out of that at all costs and to stay out. Now bring this down to the personal level of application. Say that you are reflecting or you're dealing with a specific, maybe it's kind of a reoccurring or it's a besetting sin uh, in your life. You've said or you've done something you know is not right. Here is where the heart issue, the positioning of your heart before God comes into play. And here's the question. Are you crying out to God for forgiveness and deliverance from this area you stumbled in, from this area that you're experiencing weakness and failure? Or are you crying out to just get away with it so you can do it again? What is the heart cry when you find yourself in those areas of sin, temptation, weakness, and failure? We all know people who when they get caught in their sin, they're really more sorry they got caught than they are that they did what they did when they got caught. Politicians are masters at this, aren't they? It can be the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Paul's very, very clear to say there is a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is when we are sorry and, and we are, we're crying out to God first and foremost. We're confessing our sin to him and to him alone. And the scripture says that, that when we are experiencing that godly sorrow, there is deliverance, there is salvation. 
Paul talks about worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is when it's about us. How is this going to affect me? How is this gonna affect my job? How is this gonna affect my relationships? We're sorry not because of what we did. We're sorry we got caught. We're sorry because what is this gonna mean for me now? And Paul says that kind of sorrow leads to death. And again, it's a positioning of our hearts before God. So how does a person know if they're truly just dealing with spiritual immaturity or rebellion? The fact that the difference would even matter to you is a tip-off, that you're probably dealing more with spiritual immaturity than rebellion. People who are struggling with spiritual immaturity are those who are concerned about offending God and injuring their relationship with him, whereas rebellious people, they couldn't care less. Even though they may outwardly appear to others that they do. I get this question oftentimes when it comes down to the whole issue of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes this statement in Matthew 12, 21. He says, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven men. And there are those Christians who look at that, they read that verse, and they wonder, have I committed the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now, a good rule of thumb on that issue is, is if you care if you are concerned that you may have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then chances are very good that you have not. Because again, a person who has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit does not care that they have. And again, this can be an example of the difference between spiritual immaturity and rebellion against God. As I said earlier, you see this difference of spiritual immaturity and rebellion kind of play out um, in the two lives of King David and King Saul there in the Old Testament. King David represents a very graphic and a very vivid example of someone who is struggling with spiritual immaturity while at the same time, he possesses a very sincere desire and attention to just follow after God. David comes to understand that, that part of God's uh, character towards him is that God takes great delight in David. He sees David as a man who's after his own heart. Even in his weakness or in the midst of his spiritual immaturity, David sees God as someone who takes great delight in him. David comes to discover and he realizes that God's love is fully towards him even while he is in the process of spiritually maturing. Again, as I said earlier, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then has her husband murdered to try to cover up the child that was conceived in that adulterous affair. And when Nathan comes to David and he finally confronts David with what he has done, David responds with this full, complete, total repentance to the Lord. 
As a matter of fact, again, if you want to read through that whole confession uh, of his sin with Bathsheba, you can read that in Psalm 51. I took a portion of that and prayed into that this morning. Again, listen to part of his confession there in verse one. He says, be gracious. He, he, he sees, he knows, he understands that God is gracious. And so he calls upon that attribute of God. God, let your graciousness come upon me according to your loving kindness. He also understands, he knows the loving kindness of God. And he says, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out or remove my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from every sin. Man, this, this is He's positioning his heart before God. I love this. For I know in my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. And he says, against you and you only. Again, this is godly sorrow. He says, God, I have sinned against you and you alone. And I have done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified, God, when you speak and blameless when you judge. I love in verse 17 there in Psalm 51, he says, you God, you will never despise a broken and a contrite heart. Man, if we will just come to God with a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that says, God, I am so sorry for what I've done against you. David says, God will never ever turn that away. He'll never reject you. He'll never despise that. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. When David completely fell down in sin, and it was great sin, he comes to a point where he recognizes it, and he owns it, and he rises back up in this sincere wholehearted confession and repentance to God instead of just making excuses or making it uh, a part of his lifestyle or compromising. What we see there in David's life, certainly very serious issues of sin, was his heart, his response to God was a clear sign of spiritual immaturity. Again, deep, great, spiritual immaturity, that was King David. King Saul was a completely different story, completely different man, completely different heart posture before God. There's a great example of this rebellion that Saul displays against God in 1 Samuel 15. Saul had been anointed king over Israel and God has told him to go and to destroy the wicked Amalekites. And God's very, very specific in his directions to Saul. He says, I want you to go in there and I want you to completely destroy that entire nation. Every man, every woman, every child. He says, do not leave one of them alive. And he was also told to destroy all of the livestock, all of the animals of the Amalekites. So Saul goes and he wages war against the Amalekites and he destroys everyone except Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Saul also spared the best of the livestock. So the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Saul like it did to the prophet Nathan. And God tells Saul that, or he tells Samuel that Saul had disobeyed 
And when Saul sees Samuel, he tells him that he has done what God told him to do. Saul says to Samuel, I've obeyed the Lord. I have, I have done the word of the Lord. And Samuel responds by saying, then what is the sound of that bleeding sheep? What is the sound of those lowing oxen? Where is that coming from? In other words, Samuel the prophet is telling King Saul that he knows Saul has not fully obeyed the command of the Lord. Now I want you to notice how Saul's response differs from David's when he is caught in this place of sin and rebellion. Saul begins making all kinds of excuses saying that, you know, I spared the best of the livestock because I wanted to use that as a sacrifice, as an offering to the Lord. And Samuel says in response to Saul, hey, God told you specifically and clearly to destroy all of the Amalekites, their livestock, and you deliberately disobeyed the Lord. And in verse 22, Samuel asks Saul, and, and he says, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifice or your obedience to his voice? Listen. I say to you, listen to this this morning. Obedience to God is better than any sacrifice you'll ever make. Obedience is better, it is greater, it is more pleasing to God than sacrifice. And submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So again, Saul's disobedience and rebellion, and more importantly, just his lack of repentance, his lack to even acknowledge that he has done anything wrong cost him his position as king over Israel. Even more telling is Saul's response to all of this in verse 30, listen to this. Then Saul pleads again, look, I know I've sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people. Do you see, this is worldly sorrow. It, this is about Saul. Just honor me before the people. Don't embarrass me before the people. And come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Not the Lord, my God, the Lord, our God, the Lord your God. In other words, can we at least pretend everything is fine? Can we at least just kind of put, you know, a smiley face on all of my sinful actions and just don't embarrass me in front of the people? I have my image to maintain. That is worldly sorrow, and Saul says, or Paul says that kind of sorrow leads to death. You see what was more important to Saul and you see the same attitude, the same heart posture, the same response to God throughout much of Saul's reign as king over Israel. Unlike King Saul, when David sinned, David's heart was wounded because he knew he had first and foremost grieved God's heart. 
When King Saul sinned, he schemed and he continued looking for ways to continue in that sin until he was caught and confronted and then he only gave an outward show and token of repentance. I don't have time to get into this, but we're gonna pick up next week because there really are three general responses to sin. And we each find ourselves in one of those places to sin. And then where I wanna go with this uh, is not only do we need to understand that there is uh, a great difference between spiritual immaturity um, and rebellion, what I want you to understand also, uh, and we'll get into this more next week, is that we can have the absolute confidence. We can have the absolute assurance of God's delight of his enjoyment of us in our spiritual immaturity. And this is where it's, it's tough for a lot of us to accept this. The fact that God still loves us, he enjoys us, he delights in us, even as we are in the process of spiritually maturing. Oftentimes, we kind of think as believers that there's some kind of a line with God that we cross where, where you know, all of a sudden, you know, God really doesn't love us, he really doesn't delight in us, his joy is really not uh, upon us until we reach a certain level, until we kind of cross a certain line, we kind of just think that, that you know, God despises us. That, that God's embarrassed by us, that, that God is keeping us at arm's length until we get to a certain place or a certain position in our, in our maturity. But again, we can have great assurance, great confidence that God's delight is over us, that he, he delights in us. His love is fully for us even while we are in the process of spiritually maturing. We're gonna kind of pick it up there um, next week. Invite the worship team to come back up on the platform this morning. Again, Father, we, I, I just come again. And Father, I just ask that you would position our hearts before you this morning. As David did. The Father, we understand, God, that though our sin is greater, we thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ is even greater than all sins combined. The Father, there is no sin. There are no number of sins. There are no times of sin in which those are greater than the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is greater than all of the sins combined, past, present, and future. And so Father, this morning we come and we position ourselves before you. Because of your great love, because of your great mercy, because of your kindness, because of your desire, for us, your desire to be in a relationship with us, your desire to reveal your love for us. So this morning, Father, we just pray, Lord, that you would just open the eyes of our heart, that we would see you for who you truly are, 
that you would position our hearts before you in such a way, Father, that we would be able to rejoice in your goodness, even in the place of our weaknesses, our faults, our failures, our sins, that God, we would be able to rejoice in your greatness because again, Father, we see that you who have begun a good work in us, that Father, you are committed to seeing that good work brought to its full completion in us. That is who you are. So Father, this morning I pray, Lord, that if there's any here this morning that don't know you, or that don't know you in that way, maybe there are people here this morning that see you as an angry God, a vindictive God, a God who is out to get revenge, that that is not who you are. That that is an idol, that is an image of God that we have made ourselves and it is not who you have revealed yourself to be. So this morning, Father, we just pray that you would tear down any wrong mindsets, that you would tear down any idols, that you would bring down any deceptions and in that place you would begin to reveal your true heart, your true nature, your true desire for us. that it is your desire, it is your heart to see every one of us to come to repentance, that not a one of us perish. That is your heart, that is who you are. And so this morning, God, if there's people here that are very aware of their great sin, God, would they even become more aware of your great love that is greater than all sin? And it's in that this morning, Father, that we wanna come and we wanna be embraced by you this morning and we wanna embrace you. So this morning, Father, we just come and we desire a relationship with you this morning. We turn to you and to you alone you have the words of eternal life. You have the words that can set us free. You have the words of deliverance. You have the words of healing this morning. And we come, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And we say thank you Thank you for what you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in him, and it's in his perfect, complete work we stand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.